good to see everybody online. Um, I uh, I was trying to think exactly where I left off last time. I know last time, if just to bring you up to speed, we were talking about we ended up talking about um, the sacrifice of of um, Isaac and some of the pictures involved in there. I think we kind of focused most of the time on um, just the fact that the death that he died was um, well. I mean, there, there's a there's the, the the sacrifice of Isaac is one of those types and shadows in the Old Testament that pretty much nobody uh, denies. I mean, it, and, and it's weird that people have to deny types and shadows, but it, they they just maybe they don't deny them, but they they don't recognize a ton of them. There's there's lots of people out there who um, seem reluctant. I mean, lots of uh, when I say people, I mean like Old Testament scholars or Christian leaders or whatever who seem reluctant to talk about or to to understand the Old Testament as types and shadows, um, and, and yet and yet they'll um, and yet they'll you know concede that like the Passover lamb or the sacrifice of Isaac, the, the only son of Abraham. Uh, is a type and shadow. I don't really know. I mean, I, I get. I mean, I guess I could take a few stabs at why that is, but I don't really care that much. My what what I what I do care about is understanding what the type and shadow is pointing to. It's not just a picture of Jesus, the sacrifice for sins, um, being offered as the only Son. It's a. It's a. There's so much more to that, and I think that. I mean, to that picture, there's so much more involved there, and I think last time we we spoke about the promise of increase, that all the the blessings and and promises and all of God's eternal purpose and everything that He has desired from the beginning was wrapped up in this one uh, this this one son, this one seed, and then God, in order to bring about that uh, promise, in order to bring about the, the reality that God foresaw the death of that seed see we're just we're just so we're just so amazingly man centered that we we just think about the death of Isaac or the death of Christ Isaac didn't obviously really die, but the picture of death in Isaac is is really about what God had to do to save us you know it's about us. But really, it's what God had. I mean, it, we do, we are saved by way of that sacrifice, and that's absolutely a you know a part of the picture. But it's also the way, the means by which God provided His own a way for His own increase and His own glory. It's the way that the life that was in that was contained within the one Son, the one promised seed, was shed abroad. And, and and given to, poured out in, magnified in, enlarged in a people. It's only by Jesus pouring out his life through death that we get to partake of that life and receive it. And that's, I mean, that's so, I mean, that's so, so important. It's not just a death to appease God's wrath so that he could take us to a better place. 
it's a death that is the sh- that that is the way the means by which life is given life is shared and that life which is given and shared is glorified in the ones who are receiving it and so right after that sacrifice or that picture of sacrifice that picture of sacrifice and resurrection god says because you have done this thing, I promise you this. And he starts to reiterate and restate in you all the nations of the earth. Well, you know, there's going to be an increase, like the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. And God just launches into this uh, this little speech to, to Abraham about increase immediately following the sacrifice of Isaac. Why? You know, why didn't he stop and say... Because you have done this thing, I will forgive your sins, you know, or because you have done this thing, I will allow you to live in my presence, you know, or he he immediately talks about English, he talks about glory, talks about greatness, because contrary to our so man-centered view of God's eternal purpose, his eternal purpose had increase in glory uh, as the center of it from the very beginning. From the very beginning, and, and 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 of course, I don't want to take away from the fact that we are brought into that, we are included in that, we are made partakers and participants of that, uh, though we add nothing to it. Um, it is it is God. It is something that God did for His own name, for His own glory, and and the greatness of his love is that we become beneficiaries of that of that plan we become the living uh, the land that bears his increase the kingdom that that is governed by his nature and reign we become the bride that is given his seed and bears his increase you know all these different pictures we we are that we play we have that role but it is Christ-centered. It is about the glory and increase of the one that God foreknew uh, before anything was created. And you could see that right in the story, because when he goes up, and I wrote down, I don't remember exactly how, how far I got in that story. I think I kind of covered most of what I wanted to say, but I had these little... Uh, this little list of things that I, I called elements of interest that I don't I don't think I got to at the end of these notes here. Where where he when he's walking to the to the thing and maybe I did mention this, I'm I'm not sure. But um God doesn't say you remember when, when Isaac says, Father, I see the wood, you know, I see the 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 altar or whatever and and yet he says, Well you know, where's the sacrifice? And and Abraham's um, response is just so. I, I mentioned it actually in in, the, in one of the chapters of the, the Not I But Christ book, just because it, it just touches my heart so much. He, God's response isn't, "Don't worry, I'll prepare for you a sacrifice." That Abraham says, "Don't worry, God has prepared for Himself a sacrifice." What's the difference? The difference is that. God was preparing for himself a sacrifice. He was preparing for himself a means of increase, a means of glory, a way to accomplish his eternal purpose, a way to give his son an inheritance, a way to, to hand his, hand over 
to his son the 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 inheritance of the firstborn, a kingdom and a priesthood. He was providing this for himself, and we're the thing, you know, that that. I don't know. I, I, there's so many ways to, to to talk about it, but it's just it never it never ceases to amaze, to amaze me the depths to which I have made everything that is Christ-centered somehow man-centered, somehow me-centered. This is just one of them. And and uh, we'll, we'll look at this in a bunch of different ways as we go through the Old Testament. But um, the sacrifices when we get into uh, Leviticus, uh, Exodus, and Leviticus one day. We're going to see what God, what is God really doing? Again, man says, oh, this is a way to forgive me. This is a way to cover me. And, and certainly that is in, involved in there. But God is, the other way to look at that is that God is protecting himself from you. God is keeping you flesh out of his sight. God is providing for himself a way to relate to a body, the body of Christ in Christ as his body. God is, is, is providing a way to keep all fallen things, all things that have fallen short of his glory out of his presence forever. God is providing for himself a sacrifice and a way for his, the fragrance of Christ, the life of Christ to work in every individual member. He's doing it focused on his eternal purpose. So, and you know, and that's so God provides here, and that's that name. I believe it's Jehovah Jireh. There's, if you've been in certain churches, there's songs about Jehovah Jireh, or, or you know, things that I think are. I used to I used to sing a few songs about Jehovah Jireh. The Lord is our provider, and yet again, we we take because you know on, on the mountain, he 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 calls the Lord. Um, or he calls the name of the mountain. Is it the mountain? Jehovah Jireh right there. Because it says in the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. What's provided? And who's it provided for? What do we, what do, we do with that Jehovah Jireh? If you've, if you've heard that at all, you've probably heard it with within the context of God will provide for me. You know, you, you go to a prayer meeting and you say, Jehovah Jireh, you are the God who provides and I need a, a car. Or I need, you know, like a... Uh, a down payment on a house or something, and 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 you know I, I, that's not a crime or anything, but it's certainly not the context of that story. It's certainly not the pl- the the context of the place where the name Jehovah Jireh came out from. The context is that God indeed provides; He provides for Himself a sacrifice that becomes the means. Of his eternal purpose coming to pass, the means of his increase in glory and greatness being like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky, and and um, I don't know. I, I say that just because it uh, it just never ceases to amaze me. That's that's the issue. If you want to, if you were to ask me, what is just just what is the primary Problem with with mainstream Christianity at, at large. Not you know, not not trying to be critical or whatever. Just a general statement about that. I that if I were thinking, you know, what what would I think God would have to say about mainstream Christianity at large? I would say it is unbelievably man-centered in a million different ways. What's the? If I, or you could ask me, what's the one thing that? There's so many different versions of Christianity. There's so many different ideas and 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 
and uh, you know opinions and theologies and uh, directions and focuses and visions and all these different things you know and this church never agrees with that one and that one disagrees with this one and this ministry is contrary to that ministry and everyone's fighting whatever but there is something that unites them all you know and and, and this is in my heart too so I'm not I'm not pointing the finger outside of myself but there there's one thing that that makes them all the same and makes them all to whatever degree Christ has not been revealed and seen and known as the eternal purpose and reality of God. The one thing that it's like they all have the same smell to them. There's something that unites them. What is it? Man-centeredness. That's what it is. The wrong man is magnified. The wrong man is glorified. The wrong man is being used. The wrong man is being appreciated. The wrong man doesn't matter how many times we say the name Jesus. And you start, when you start to see the Lord, when you start to realize, uh, and I know, I know a lot of you know what I'm talking about. When you begin to see in His light just something of the, the otherness of Christ, the greatness of the cross, the fact that it is not I but Christ, and, and, and that He is all and I am nothing, and He is life and I am death, and He is light and I am the lie, and when that starts to dawn on your heart in a, in a, in a real and, and, and powerful way, you don't even necessarily understand what it is about something that you know is wrong, but you can smell that man-centeredness. You know, you, you don't, you, you t- you're talking with someone and they're super excited about something in Christianity and, and you're, something sounds wrong to you, something sounds kind of funky, and, uh, and, and you can't net, put your finger on it, but, but, uh, what it, what it is, at least in my experience, what it always is, is is that with a little bit of light you start to recognize Adam being exalted in one way or another Adam being excited about Adam being used or Adam being meaningful or Adam's giftings being important or um, something's going to touch the natural man the natural day the natural economy the natural whatever and that's why you're excited about that verse that's why you're excited about that conference or that book or whatever it's just the wrong man the wrong man. And I just remember seeing that. I mean, I'm still seeing it about myself. But I remember seeing in the beginning when I first started seeing the Lord, I just, I, I remember seeing that that was the reason that I was excited about every single aspect of Christianity. And it just, it struck me to my heart. That's why I was interested in prophecy. That's why I was interested in spiritual gifts. That's why I wanted a ministry. That's why I studied the Bible. You know, there was a man that I was seeking the good of. And it was not the right man. And why am I talking about this? Oh, just just because of the Jehovah Jireh thing, I guess. It's just another way. God is provider. God is provider. Yes, but he provides for himself a sacrifice that is for his own increase and his own glory so that he can give his own son that son's inheritance, a kingdom and a priesthood. And, and man, I tell you, we, it, it, it's, it's almost a miracle. I mean, it's... It, it, it's almost a miracle the degrees to which the the, the 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 religious heart of man has created a way to make every verse and every theology and every that, that well let me finish my sentence it created all of these things to be focused on the wrong man and that's why reading the the Bible when you start to see the Lord. Reading the Bible is like reading an, a totally new book. It's a totally different book. Why? 
you've read the words before, but you've always had the wrong man in view. You've always seen the wrong man. And it just, it's a totally different book when the right man is in view. This story of Abraham and Isaac is a totally different story when you see that God is exalting the Son in whom all of his eternal plan and purpose was placed when God is enlarging that son, if you can hear my language, not making you to be Jesus, but but expanding, so to speak, the boundaries of Christ to include a corporate body, uh, which is the church, the body of Christ, so that the glory of the one fills the many members. That's what's going on here. And it's all through death and it's all through sacrifice. But God has provided for himself that sacrifice. And... uh all right, well, I, I was hoping just to mention some of that just really quickly, but, um, you know, I, I, just, I, wrote, I just have this list here of this thing, things about this that I may or may not have in, uh, mentioned, just, just so you know that this is a picture of Christ and resurrection. And it says so in Hebrews. There's an interesting um, verse in Hebrews 11, verse 17, just to, just to throw it out there. Uh, it says, by faith, that is, by, by seeing. In, 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 interestingly enough, um, it says, as Abraham was walking, you know, Isaac was more or less dead in Abraham's heart for three days, okay? Just like Christ was dead to the Father for three days because the journey from the, the announcement of, you know, God says, go sacrifice your son. Abraham walks three days to the mountain and it says, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place. He saw the mountain of sacrifice from, from far off, okay? Now, that's... And Jesus comes later and he says... Um, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. Abraham saw it. and Or he, he saw my day and rejoiced or something like that. And I just think that it's interesting. I don't, I don't know exactly what Jesus was referring to there, but it, the fact that Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw from far off the mountain where this whole thing was going to take place, the reality of this thing, to me, speaks of that. Abraham, by faith, Abraham looked beyond his day, looked beyond his covenant, saw the day, saw the coming, didn't understand all the details. As as Peter says, the prophet saw that, saw these things from afar, didn't understand exactly the the, the who and the why and the where. But they, 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 they saw these things and spoke of these things that were fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what Peter says, first Peter. Uh, yeah, first Peter. And, um, and, and, and so anyway, Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place far off. Abraham rejoiced to see, saw my day and rejoiced. And then, so then Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven seventeen, getting back to that, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, by faith, he offered up Isaac and he, uh, who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your siege, in Isaac, again, in all this language is so important, in Isaac, your siege shall be called, not because of Isaac, not, you know, whatever, it's in Isaac, your siege, it's, it's the enlargement of Isaac, it's the glory of this one seed, in Isaac, your siege shall be called, concluding, here's, here's what faith was seeing, okay, here's what faith was concluding, Hebrews 11:19 concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also that is from the dead he also received him 
in a figurative sense or in a, in a typical uh, type and shadow way. So, again, you have the author of Hebrews looking back at this story saying, by faith, Isaac was seeing something that was God's perspective. What was he seeing? He was seeing that this son who was offered at this place, which God revealed, was being given back to him as a picture of one raised from the dead, receiving him back, raised up even from the dead, in a figurative sense. And I just mentioned that too because that's, you know, this is a class on types and shadows and, 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 and there's so many verses like this where you can see how the authors of the New Testament were reading these stories. Um, okay, well, yeah, I, I have a few other little things here in this list, but I, I, I want to move on. I don't remember. I, th- I think I said most of this stuff last time, so. I want to talk about Genesis 23. We're going to go on to Genesis 23. And this is just kind of a short chapter. If you want to flip there, you can. There, there's a couple verses here that, uh, that I want to point out. And, and, um, and I like, let's see, I, I, New, New King James says it. The, well, I think, the, I think it looks like New King James, New American Standard, King James, um, all say it the same way. It's, I guess it's maybe it's different in Spanish. That's what I was thinking. There's a there's a translation in Spanish. It's, it sounds a little different, but I, I like I like how it reads here in English. In in Genesis 23, it's it's um you know Abraham's journeying, and and his wife Sarah dies. Right, so he he goes. He's in this land. Um, as a stranger, you know, in this, or as a pilgrim in this land, and he goes to the, in, in the occupants of the land, and he says, uh, to them, in Genesis, let's see here, 23, 8. No, no, let's go back a verse here. 23, uh, let's go back to, 20, let's go back to 23, 3. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead, and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. That I may bury my dead out of my sight. Then he says it again um, in verse 28. He says, If you wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with blah, 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 blah. And I might even say it again. Maybe three times. Um, or he just uses that phrase, bury my dead out of my sight. And then you, you probably know the story. He, he goes on and they, he, he weighs out 400 shekels of silver and, and, um, and he ends up burying her there. But, um, I've, I've mentioned this before in other teachings and maybe you've heard it before. I, I just, I don't want to whiz past, uh, Genesis 23 without mentioning this. It's it's the primary thing I see in this chapter. I'm sure there's more there, but it's it's the thing I wanted to talk about. It's this reality of burial. We, we, I mention a lot the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The New Testament mentions a lot the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And 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 yet I, I think that the death is something we talk about a whole lot. And the resurrection is something we talk about a whole lot. And burial, uh, maybe more recently, but at least for several years, was something that I didn't talk about a whole lot. I didn't, I didn't understand it as as clearly. It, it didn't come into view. Um, and, and I think there's a reason for that. But 
burial has a very important significance and i think you begin to see i think you begin to see that significance or or, or the language that's used in this chapter begins to show us that significance in a really clear way what is burial well naturally speaking burial is the process by which something that is dead something that's already dead i mean there's no you never bury anything that's not dead you know it's a fact that it's dead but what is so what does burial actually accomplish i mean why don't people why don't people i don't know just uh I guess it'd be kind of gross, but I was just thinking, why don't they just like leave dead people or throw them somewhere or whatever? But you know, what is what, what's what's burial do? Well, it it some people would say, well, it gives me a sense of closure. You know, well, what, why is that? Because it takes out of your view, it 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 removes from your view something that you no longer should be relating with. You no longer really can relate with, not in truth. You know, it, it, it puts the dead in a place where the relationship to it ends. It puts the dead somewhere where you can no longer see it. Or you could say it like this. It gives back to the earth something that is of the earth. It gives it back to where it came from, to the realm that it came from, and it lets it remain there as part of the earth. From dust you, can, from dust you, you come, from dust you, to dust you will return. And so you you are are basically taking out of your sphere of experience or your the realm of experience or, or realm of relationship that which um, that which you really have no business relating to to begin with. Now we've all heard these creepy. Um, Maybe you haven't. At least I think I think everyone probably has. But these creepy stories of of people that like have had loved ones die and like not wanted to bury them, you know. Or I don't want to get too graphic or anything. But I remember reading in the news a handful of times over the years of so and so's, you know, their husband died and you know she still left left him in the house, you know, for a few months or something gross like that. Well, a, a failure to put an end. I mean, we, we think that that's gross for probably mostly natural reasons, but even relational reasons, that's kind of twisted and weird. Removing from our sight, we have to face the facts that that person is gone. Well, why am I talking about that? Well, it's because that natural type and shadow, like, like so many, like, like every other thing that God created, has a spiritual counterpart that is super important for us to to, to, to understand and to experience. The cross of Christ has killed something, has made something dead, has, has caused it to have no right to continue relating to you at all. It's not part of what God sees. It's not part of your relationship with God. It's absolutely judged and put away from God. And yet... 
we refuse to bury it. We bring it with us. We relate to it. We will not put it back to the earth, which is where it came from and where it needs to go. We will not stop uh, looking at it, considering it part of our lives. Worse than that, we even try to make it the, the, the reality of our relationship with God. I mean, that's how blind we are. We actually, if you picture a, a person carrying around a, a dead a dead corpse on their back and trying to, you know, talking to it, dressing it, trying to keep it from smelling, try, and, and then when it was time to relate to God, pulling it out and using it kind of like as a puppet, you know? I mean, I know that's really disgusting, but trying to relate to God in a man that he has rejected and completely put out of his sight. Trying to make the basis of your relationship a man that God has judged and crucified with his son. And and I think how gross that is to us in the natural realm corresponds to how wrong and and um how I don't know, I don't know if the word is gross the word gross is appropriate or not but how wrong and incorrect it is from God's perspective to try to continue to for us a, a to relate ourselves to that which is dead and also to to try to relate to God in a man and from a from a man from, from the man who God does not relate to there's a bunch of old testament pictures about this that um you remember what was a way to get instantly unclean even if it was totally an accident in the old covenant touch something dead i mean even if you were walking in the field and a bird had died of a heart attack in the air and fell on top of you and landed on your foot you were unclean it doesn't matter if it was your fault or not you know, or you trip and you fall in someone's, you know, grave and, and they hadn't filled it in yet or something, you touch something dead, you're unclean. Um, th- there were sacrifices needed. You had to go outside of the camp. You had to bathe. You know, you had to s- separate yourself from the, you could not touch something dead. And why? It immediately, uh, it made you unclean. It had an effect on you. There wasn't, it was, it was, it was like, there was a contamination involved. And and that wasn't just and again a lot of times modern commentators make that all have to do with natural health reasons like God was really looking out for the health of Israel because He wouldn't let them touch dead bodies He didn't want them to get you know I don't know gingivitis or whatever you get from a dead body and uh, and <laughs> that's that oh that's I mean that's ridiculous but it yes you can get things from a dead body but that's not the point. He wasn't just looking out for their health. He was painting pictures of spiritual realities. You have been crucified with Christ. Your soul has been translated out of that realm and that kingdom and that dominion brought over into Christ. And the degree to which you relate with and try to find reality and relationship and fix your eyes on something that is dead, to that degree you are contaminating yourself in one way or another. You know, and, and, and there's the, the rituals and rites involved in purifying one from a dead, from touching someone dead have to do and, and point to the soul's purification or, or liberation from that thing, that dead thing that touches us, that contaminates us, if that makes sense. So, 
there's there's these three days of the work of the cross, three days that are so prevalent all throughout the Old Testament. The, the, the you know if you ever get bored one day, type into the your Bible program or you're on your on your phone or whatever. Type in um, three days and just see how many times or third day, um, how many times that comes up in the old. Old Testament over and over and over again. These three days are are brought up in some view of the cross because death, burial, resurrection. These three days, all all three of these days are important realities. That the first day is the death, and the la- it's a finished work. Resurrection is the third day. It's a new creation. It's everything made new. What's burial? Burial is the transition burial is the transformation burial is where the heart is where the is where your soul let me say it like this death is a fact resurrection is a fact but burial is the process where we face the facts Burial represents that transition of the soul from the one to the other. It's, it's that, it's, and it's that same way, I mean, in, in natural types and shadows, that's why Abraham had to bury Sarah out of his sight. He had to face the facts. He had to end the relationship. He had to put back to the earth, terminate that, that, that union that he had with something that no longer, that, that had no life. And I can see, you know, in that way, you can. I can kind of see uh, when I talk about the tabernacle, I talk about death, burial, and resurrection there, and I talk about burial there, the laver, which is always washing away that which is dead. You know, they do the sacrifices, they get the blood and the stuff on their hands, they go to the laver, they wash it away, the washing of the water of the word, removing from them the things that clung to them on their hands and their feet. Or when we talk about the the uh, the journey from from the wilderness or from the uh, from Egypt, Egypt. Wilderness, promised land, death, burial, resurrection. In Egypt, death became a reality in the land. And, and, and then in, in the promised land, this is life and experience of resurrection, salvation. What's the wilderness? The wilderness was where they refused to bury Egypt. That's So they carried the reproach of Egypt with them for 40 years. They could have buried it. They should. Caleb and Joshua buried it. And they were ready to go in right away. They, they finished their, you know, burial process pretty quick. But the majority of Israel would not... If, how would you define that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness? Well, it, it's you can see by the Lord's language as he describes that whole story that they would not put out of their heart what God had already put out of their sight. Remember, uh, Exodus chapter 14, God says, stand still and see, see the salvation of the Lord. For the Israelite or the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again forever. And God closed that sea on in them, on them and, 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 and buried, phys- physically buried them in the sea, removed them, baptized them into the death. I mean, they just were, they were gone. They never, that generation never again saw Egypt. And yet, you can see over and over and over again. Let us go back to Egypt. Appoint us a leader to lead us back to Egypt. I wish we were still in Egypt. Remember in Egypt how we used to have this? 
there was a refusal in their hearts to face they, they were standing between two facts one fact was the death and judgment of Egypt represented in the lamb they're putting away of the first the other fact was this promised land which is this full experience of life and abundance and rest and and all these pictures of Christ and 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 they were there in in this burial refusing to uh, put back to the earth the things that God had killed. And and this is really um, this is this is a a really big and common theme in the New Testament too. You read about it in in the in the Bible. We have this old man, and and we you know, the scripture will tell us Paul will tell us that old man is dead. That old man was crucified with Christ. And and yet, there's these other scriptures that talk about how we're putting off that old man. And and some people say, well, I, you know, I thought he was dead, or how come he feels so alive? And all those questions that come into our heart about if the old man's dead, why, you know, why does he seem like the only man that I know and all that has to do with burial all that has to do with the, the problem for us the problem that Paul deals with in Romans especially uh, also Ephesians and Galatians 2 at the ends uh, where he's talking about transformation it, it, you know and one way to say it is that we have a very hard time burying our dead we have a really hard time being willing to let the Lord take out of our hearts what he's already taken out of his sight. So, um, anyway, that's just one day I was reading that there in in Genesis chapter 23 and just the the way that Abraham phrased that, give me a place to land to bury my dead out of my sight. That really jumped out at me. Uh, Let's see here. We got a little bit of time left. I'll mention some things about... um, Isaac's wife. The uh, this goes on into chapter twenty-four, and this is uh, this is kind of a long chapter, partly because it repeats parts. You know, it, it tells the story, and then and then um, uh, and and then what's his name? Abraham's uh, servant retells the story when he gets to Rebecca's house, and but. If you haven't read this chapter, you should go back and read it. It's it's a story of about how the how the Lord provides a bride, um, a wife for Isaac, and I think, at least in my heart, uh, right now, the general thing in view here. That the Lord is um, dealing with again. I, I I tend to look at the. I was talking to someone this morning about this too. I tend to look at the general picture, and then when I can see a, a bit of the general like overall picture, then some of the details start to make sense within that general within that general picture. Um, but. The general picture here is about God. It's another picture of a, a relationship between a husband and a wife, Christ and the church. Okay, it's it's a 
the the whole Bible is a story about the desire of God to glorify his son. And he does that through this creation that he makes, this thing that he makes and joins to his son for his own glory. And in several stories that that creation is talked about as a land. Uh, in other places, it's a harvest. In other places, it's a bride. In other places, it's a kingdom. But it's always the exa- it's always the same purpose. It's always the same theme, the same reality. God, from before the foundation of the earth, has desired to cause to bring about the glory and increase of His own eternal Son. Therefore, creation comes about as a means to that end. That's what creation was for. And the natural creation is a natural picture of the, of an increase of a man and the glory and a kingdom and a harvest and all those things are all they're all there right there in the natural creation. But all those things find their eternal fulfillment in spiritual realities in Christ. Now here's so here's one of those pictures that keeps repeating throughout the Old Testament. We saw it with Adam and Eve. Uh, we saw. A man that it was not good for him to be be alone. He he he. The Lord desired that he have an increase, uh, a, a partner that would bring about uh, that would come from his own life, but would also bring about his own increase. Remember that's the whole story there, and and so we're seeing the same story in all of the husband, wife, bride, bridegroom pictures throughout the entire um, Old Testament. They all have that basic general idea, and then they add more details. They add more pictures, all of which point to um, the fulfillment of our relationship in Christ. So here is another, it's like God's taking another crack at that at that picture. He's filling in some more details. It's a picture of union. God is providing a way to bring Isaac the, the figure of, uh, that represents Christ or the seed, you know, the true, the seed of promise, into a union that brings about an increase. Okay? The increase, the increase of a husband's seed through his perfect partner, you could say. And, and, uh, and this is, in this particular story, in the, in the story of Adam and Eve, we saw, um, that the partner uh, was had to be of the same kind as Christ had to be the same kind as the man. He, he didn't, you know, he didn't find a perfect partner in any of the natural creation, any of the animals or uh, trees or anything. Nothing that was made. It had to actually be of the exact same kind in order for him to become one with it, to be one with it, and for it to bear his increase, right? So that was, that's something we saw there. That's something we're going to see again in this story. The one, the thing that joins itself to Isaac has to come, it has to be of the same kind. It has to make the same journey, and that's kind of what's in view here, um, is, is that the bride of Isaac is called to him out from 
one realm or world or or creation it's it's called out of that place and it's called unto him there's this servant who i think that kind of represents the the ministry of the holy spirit or the 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 work of the spirit of god in drawing that bride or in inviting that bride but it's Isaac is not going to unite himself to anything foreign. In the, he starts off the whole story. The whole chapter starts off with "swear, swear to me." He says to his servant, "You will not take uh, a wife for my son from any of these these Canaanites and Philistines and whateverites that are around here. He he will not be joined to anything of a different kind, a different nature. Uh, you, there's it's like it's kind of like Adam and Eve." In the beginning, or God saying, "Adam, you will not be joined to the chimpanzee, or the porcupine, or the you know, or the sumac tree, or whatever. You know, there's there's nothing there that you can be joined to. It has to be something that is of the like kind. And in order to get that kind, the the spirit of God is going to have to bring that bride." out kind of in, in the same really in the same journey that Isaac made out I mean they, they, uh, that's the same land that Abraham came from out of one land into another and now to to to, to if you can hear what I'm saying to get that bride the Lord has to reach kind of like by his spirit reach back into um, a, a realm that is kind of contrary and pull out to himself along the same route around and the same journey that which he's going to unite to okay so i think i think that's kind of the big picture of what's going on here so that that if if you if you're missing the connection here with christ and the church the only way that we are united to Christ is when we go where he is. We, through his death, burial, and resurrection, have to be, that. you know, Jesus says, that they may be with me where I am. I desire, Father, that they be with me where I am. And, and he leaves. He goes out from that realm. And the only way that we can be joined to him is if we go out with him. We go out to him. We leave behind Everything we leave behind our country, kindred, and father's house, and go out. We take the same journey he took out. Now he does not come back to us here. That and that's an important thing. He does not come back to, um, to the 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 flesh. I mean, the spirit. The spirit is there, kind of inviting us out, but he does not come come back to flesh. To join with us, you know, that's that's super important, and and it has has some, I don't know, it has some eschatological uh, implications too, if you think about it. But um, Christ came out from the realm of the dead, and he 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 invites us to come with him but Abraham starts this this is actually let's just read a little bit Abraham starts this whole thing saying swear to me that you won't you won't take them from um, among this people and and that my son will never go back I think it's kind of how he says it my son will never go back to that 
Yeah. Well, that's what he says. In, let me read. Uh, let's start in Genesis 24.1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed him in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please, put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So that starts out saying, look, you're not going to take a wife of a foreign seed. That's not going to happen. But you shall go to my country, to my family, and take a wife for my son. And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me. And that's always the issue with us. I know I'm running out of time here, but... That's kind of what this story ends up being about. It's about the willingness of, of the bride to... It's about the heart of the bride to follow him out uh, of her country, kindred, and father's house. Uh, a bride who is humble, serving his camels. A bride that is thirsty, drinking at the well. Uh, willing to come out. Yes, I will go with him, even though the family says, stay 10 days and, you know, let's think about this some more. And are you sure you want to go now? And all of those kind of things, those, 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 uh, um, excuses to, uh, f- that she could have, you know, legitimately, so to speak, stayed behind and not gone out. Um, but, you know, anyway, it says, what if, where am I? Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to me, Beware that you do not take my son back there. I hope you're seeing the impact of this. Beware that you don't take my son back there. And he says it again in verse 8, If the woman um, is not willing to go, then you'll be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. See, Christ comes out from among the dead. He comes out from Adam. He, he's never going, he doesn't go back to that realm. He doesn't go back to that man. He invites us out. Now, I know we spend all of our time trying to get him to come back to touch our world and be involved in all of our stuff. But what he's trying to do, the father says, don't ever take him back there. Beware. He's not going back there. Swear to me that you'll never take him back there. He came out from there. He finished his business there. He put away the first. He he became the judgment. He became the sacrifice. He became the end. He terminated my relationship with that land. He's not going back. You go find those or find that bride who is willing to come out. Do you see the difference? You find the one who will leave what my son left and follow him, follow him, pick up his cross, go where he goes, follow him unto a land where they can come out and experience union with him, which is how the story ends. And I'm I'm kind of rushing this because uh, I'm running out of time, but the story ends with um, Isaac and Rebecca going into the tent at the end. Again, not just a love story, but a picture of union, a picture of, you know, it's like the Song of Solomon, uh, how it starts. He brought me into his, um, his, his tent and, um, you know, that, that's, that, that picture of, of, of union where he is fully given unto her and, and all of that. But, um, so, yeah. There's a lot here. Maybe I should just pick it up next next time. But th- this this story of let me just say this and I'll stop. Um, this the the story of 
wives being joined to that particular type and shadow of Christ. You're going to find it a lot in the Old Testament. And it it very often has to do, in this particular picture, the wife is often seen leaving her native land in order to be joined to her husband. And there's a purpose for that. I mean, you see that here. You see that again in um, in, in Rachel and Jacob. Um, she leaves her father and his his inheritance and comes out with Jacob and and says, "What inheritance do I have in my own land? You know, my inheritance is with you." And goes out. You see that with um, Naomi and and Ruth. And in order to be joined to to go into the land and, and to find her inheritance, she leaves. Um, you know, to 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 marry Boaz and experience that whole kinsman redeemer picture. There, she she has to leave her gods and her land and say to Naomi, "Your God is my God, your land is my land." And then she goes out from that and comes in and is joined to a new husband. And 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 anyway, that that's a picture that repeats because it's how it works with you and I. We are the wife. We are all the. Uh, the one that the Spirit of God, the servant of Abraham, is going out looking for, looking for the ones who aren't trying to get the servant to stay. I mean, the servant might do, and I mean to say this about the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, well, the servant of Abraham did a few impressive things to prove to Rebekah that he was who he said he was. He showed her, he put a ring on her nose and put some bracelets on her shoulder, a bunch of gold, and told her some cool stories. All of that, though, was to get her to come out. You see what I'm saying? The Spirit of God sometimes does that very same kind of stuff. You see that in the beginning of Acts. You know, basically showing who he was, demonstrating his power, you know, holding up the... In a, in a manifest way, proof or evidence of God's reality if you're looking for it or whatever, not so that you can get the servant to stay there with his gold trinkets, but so that you will understand where he's bringing you and leave with him. And, uh, yeah, I'm just going to, I guess I'm just going to stop with that. I'm kind of, I feel like I'm right in the middle of the story, but I, I couldn't get into the whole. Um, thing with Laban. Laban's kind of the bad guy in this story too. He ends up being the bad guy in the next story of uh, Jacob too. But he's 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 the young bad guy here, and he's the old bad guy there. There's this whole sister bride thing. Yeah, I'm just gonna stop with that.